Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome all of you here at Faith, those of you who are joining us in person, as well as those of you who are joining us online. I want to pray for moms here in a couple minutes, but I just want to reiterate something Chris mentioned, just about the heart ministry, and that's a ministry uh, that's based here at Faith. It's for this church as well as the community uh, to help primarily women who've experienced uh, infertility, miscarriage, uh, stillbirth, and uh, it's primarily for, for women, but obviously that, that issue affects their men as well. And so if you're in here in person, I would really encourage you, if this is a need for you or someone you know, stop by the table. There's all sorts of resources. They're free. We'd, we'd like you to take these and uh, share them with those that have needs. So I just picked up this one flyer. It, it has all sorts of resources, local resources, support groups, websites, articles, uh, books, songs, podcasts, all sorts of, of help. Uh, if you're joining us online, uh, contact the church office and Deb will put you in touch with the heart ministry. And uh, so we have resources also, if there's a need, if you would have a need to talk with someone, counsel with someone who really understands uh, what you might be going through, uh, someone of compassion, let us know, and that's available as well. Well, please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, on this Mother's Day, we bring you many different thoughts, memories, and emotions. Uh, many of us, of us bring deep gratitude and joy for our mothers, mothers who have loved us, sacrificed for us, and cared for us, rejoiced with us, wept with us, walked with us, taught us how to honor you in this life. And we praise you for the love that you've shown us through our moms. And we pray for all those who are moms today, that you would give them strength where they're weak, wisdom where they're unsure, perseverance through the many demands that are placed upon them, confidence in the care that you have for them and for their families. And on this Mother's Day, some of us bring you sadness and pain. Some of us are saddened because our relationship with our mom is not easy or was not easy or in some cases never really existed at all. And some of us are saddened because our children are struggling emotionally and spiritually and relationally, and we feel helpless and often hopeless. And so, Father, please meet us in our pain. Heal our hearts where they're wounded. Soften our hearts where they're hardened. Enable us to forgive and to love even those who have hurt us. And God, on this Mother's Day, others are saddened who long to be moms, who long to be dads, long to have children, and yet are not able to do so. Father of mercies, give comfort in the midst of sadness. Give hope despite unfulfilled longings. Give comfort and even joy in the knowledge that your love is unshakable and that you always have our best in mind. And Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would speak to us. Your word is true. Your word is insightful beyond anything else. And so we want to receive from you. We want to hear from you today. We pray this in the name of the great shepherd of our souls, Jesus himself. Amen. Well, today we are continuing our sermon series in the book of 1 John. And... Uh, our passage today is 1 John 2, verses 18 
through 27. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand as I read this passage. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 18. John writes this. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would, not have, con- they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is God's word. Please be seated. So please don't read anything into the fact that I'm preaching about the Antichrist on Mother's Day, okay? Don't read anything into that in our our series in 1 John. We've come to this passage. It happened to fall on this day, and I don't in any way apologize for that because this is an amazing passage, and it's a passage that should fill us both with courage uh, and with strength. And so I hope you receive it as intended today. As you notice in this passage, John tells us that we're living in the last hour, which is basically the period of time between the first and second comings of Christ. And both Testaments talk about this this last chapter in human history as we know it. Sometimes it's called the end times or the last days. Here it's called the last hour. And we're told about this last period in, in human history so that we'll behave appropriately so that we'll know how we should act. Just like a good coach uh, instructs their team how they should play in the fourth quarter or the second half or in the final period or in the, the late innings, so too John wants us as Christians to know how we're supposed to behave in the last hour. Finishing well really, really matters, right? And so the threat John warns us about in this passage involves those that he he designates as antichrists, plural. And we need to understand three things if we're going to remain faithful to Jesus in this last hour. We need to understand uh, what is true of antichrists, what is true of us as believers, and how we need to respond And I'm going to group uh, different verses for the sake of clarity, group verses that talk about each of those three categories. And so we'll skip around just a bit in this passage, but I think you'll be able to follow. So first of all, what is true of antichrists? Verse 18 sets the context 
And there, John writes children. He calls them children to signify that he's writing with the affection and the care of a spiritual father. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And so he reminds them of something that they've already heard, namely, that in this last period of human history, this figure called Antichrist would come. And John's actually the only author who uses this term in the Bible. He uses it four times in 1 John and once in 2 John. And so when you put the prefix anti in front of a title or a name, it designates someone who is against that person or someone who stands, who claims to be that person. And so here John is referencing, you've been told about this, this figure, this, this one who is going to come and they will be, this person will actually be against the true Christ, against Jesus. He'll actually claim to be Christ himself. He will claim to be a false Christ. And so they had heard that, that this Antichrist was coming. But interestingly, John doesn't discuss what is true of the Antichrist, singular, who would come one day. He's more concerned about the Antichrists, plural, who had already come in John's day, and the Antichrists who were here in our day. And John identifies who he's talking about. He's very clear. There's nothing mysterious about this. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. John tells us exactly who he's talking about in this passage. Beginning of verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And so these antichrists that John had in mind were individuals who were formerly part of the believing community. They would have sat in their assemblies. They would have worshiped with them. They would have had fellowship with them. But when they went out or when they separated from them, it became plain that they were not true believers. And they weren't just leaving a church. They were going out from the faith. They were abandoning their loyalty to Jesus. We'll learn more about these people John designated as antichrists in verses 22 and 23. He says, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. It's very clear, right? It says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so these weren't people who left the church because of some conflict or because they were disappointed or because they just didn't like way, the way things are going. Uh, they left because they no longer believe that Jesus is the Christ. They no longer believe that he is the promised Messiah who would die for the sins of the people, the one who would reign on the throne of David forever. As we see throughout the Gospel of John, we see it in the book of 1 John as well, that one's relationship with Jesus and with the Father either rise or fall together. And so the one that denies the Son also denies the Father who sent him. Whoever has a relationship with the Son also has a relationship with the Father who sent him. Down in verse 26, John tells us one last thing about these antichrists. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
And so that adds one more piece to it. They were not only those that left the believing community, they were not only those that abandoned Jesus as the Christ, they were now trying to deceive those who were still loyal to Jesus as the Christ. They were trying to lure people away from this devotion, exclusive devotion to Christ. And he says, they're trying to deceive you. They probably wouldn't have admitted, yeah, we're trying to deceive people. No, but that's what they were doing because John says they were lying about Christ. They were saying things about him that are not true. And so implicitly, they were trying to deceive them. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, on the one hand, it doesn't mean that we should start labeling our enemies as antichrists, right? Right? Just because somebody has left this church or organized religion, the church, just because someone has abandoned their faith in Christ, we don't label them an antichrist, right? John is talking about people who have left the church, who have abandoned their faith, but who are also trying to, to persuade believers to do the same, okay? And so different people, for whatever reasons, just have a hard time functioning in the church. Some people have incredible doubts. Some people, for a variety of reasons, have walked away from the faith. And so, unless they're belligerent, unless they unless they're, have this aggressive attitude toward the church, I mean, we should be just as inviting, as loving as we possibly can. There's no, they're not a threat. These are people that we should love and, and by our words and by our actions, try to woo back to Christ. And so on the one hand, it doesn't mean that we have this antagonistic attitude toward everybody who's, not, who's left the church. On the other hand, the people John's describing do exist in our day. It means we need to pay attention to the rest of the passage, what, the rest of the, the, the things that John tells us. And so I could give you a list of names. You probably know people too, high-profile pro, high people who were formerly uh, part of the church, even leaders in the church, and now they've left Jesus. They no longer preach the gospel. They, they would have a different gospel. They, would not, they would, would not agree that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They would not agree that no one comes to the Father but through him. They would teach all sorts of things. And with this kind of deconstructed faith, they wanted to bring people out of the church and kind of enlighten us and, and, let, and put us on the same path as they're on. And so those people exist. And I could give you names, I could give you podcasts, I would give, could give you YouTube videos, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want you to listen to them. I don't want you to be persuaded by them. And I know that sounds very narrow-minded. We, we live in a culture that just encourages us to explore everything with wild abandon and to, to be exposed to every philosophy and every lifestyle. But Jesus, by contrast, would say, and there's, there's a place for exploring cautiously. But Jesus tells us very clearly that there is a narrow path. He says there are very few people on that path. And so you won't have a lot of traveling companions, but it's the only path that leads to life. And that's what John is concerned about in 1 John. He's concerned about you know, letting people know, assuring them that they have eternal life. And so John identifies this threat, the threat of antichrists. And then he explains how God has given us everything we need to be faithful, how God has provided uh, what we need to remain faithful to Jesus and not, not uh, 
walk away from the faith. So next he talks about what is true of believers. Look there in verse 20. He says, by contrast to those who have left the faith, he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So he says there, you have been anointed. A more literal translation might be, you have an anointing by the Holy One. So that's a noun, anointing. And that noun is found only here and then down in verse 27. The verb to anoint is found in numerous places in the New Testament, and it almost always refers to God anointing people with His Holy Spirit. So just as in the Old Covenant, there were various rituals where someone would be anointed by pouring oil on their head. In the New Covenant, believers are anointed by God pouring His Holy Spirit into our hearts, Romans 5. And so this is the anointing that we have. And it's from, John tells us, from, it's by, we have been anointed by the Holy One. That's a reference to Jesus. Look at John 6, 69. And he says also that we all have knowledge. And I think he's talking there, knowledge about Jesus. He continues in verse 21. He says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth. In other words, I'm not telling you something new. No, I'm writing to you because you know it. And no lie is of the truth. And so you find this repeatedly in 1 John. Uh, He reminds his readers that when they believed the gospel, they received the truth. Okay? And so where he's going to go is says, you don't need somebody else who's left the church to enlighten you about the truth. No, you've not only received the anointing, you have received the truth. And so if you're a believer, you need to lock on to this reality. This is a reality that you have received the Holy Spirit, not a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you know the truth. And this is the exact thing that Jesus promised his disciples the night before he was crucified. They were, they were just in turmoil. They were troubled in heart because Jesus had told them he's going away. They said, you need to understand, I'm going to go back to the Father, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to make his home within you. He's going to abide in you. And he's going to remind you of everything I've taught you. So you'll have an accurate recollection of what I've taught you. And he will lead you into all truth. And so these very people, these original disciples and those who are close to them, they're the ones that wrote the documents that we call the New Testament. And so that's why we're, we, we are convinced of their uh, authority and their accuracy. And because we have those documents, we too have the truth. We too know the truth. And so when we believe in Jesus, we too are anointed by the Spirit, and we too have the truth. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, look down in verse 27, and John explains that we therefore need no one to enlighten us, especially not anti Christ's people who are against Christ. We need no one to, uh, to clue us in and explain what's really true about Jesus. Verse 27, but the anointing that you have received from him, it abides in you. It's there. It, it remains. You have to go out and find it. That anointing, the Holy Spirit abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, 
and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so this indwelling Holy Spirit is, is the best defense against the deception of those who have left the church and now want to uh, claim that we're really not in the know, that we need to understand these new things. And John's statement there where he says that you have no need that anyone should teach you, that's obviously not an absolute statement or else he wouldn't have written 1 John, right? Uh, there, there are many things. God still gives teachers. We still need to be teachable. But he's talking in a qualified sense. When it comes to Jesus, who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, no, you don't need anybody to teach you, not because you've heard it from another person. He says, no, you've been taught by God. You have this anointing. He has taught you, and he continues to press this, press this knowledge into your soul. And so, because we've been taught by God, Jesus is the Christ, this is the one thing that we know that we know. And I've seen this over and over in the lives of believers. I've seen it over and over in the lives of many of you here at Faith. Uh, I've seen you experience disaster, tragic things. I've seen some of you fall into, into some just... Uh, life-quenching, almost sins. I've seen some of you in incredible despair, but I've seen you cling to the gospel. There's so many things we don't know in this life. It's very easy to ask unanswerable questions. Very easy. It's just not hard at all to do. But there's one thing that we know that we know. We know that Jesus took on flesh and blood. He became one of us to die for us. We put our faith in him. We are given this anointing. We know the truth. We know that we are loved by God. We know that we are wanted by God. We know that we have eternal life, okay? And so even though everything else is up in the air, this is the anchor for our souls. This is the one thing that we know that we know. Sometimes that's about it, but we cling to it and God continues to, to give us faith. Well, in the last four verses of this passage, John gives us a couple of directives. We understand that there, these anti-Christs exist. There are people that want you to leave the faith. And if we understand that we've been given the anointing and that we have the truth, so what's left, left for us to do? Aren't we just good? Don't we just wander through life and hope everything turns out fine? No, John has something very specific, very simple, but very specific he wants to do. He wants us to abide. He wants us to abide. And so let's look at our response. We'll look at verse 24 and 27. He first talks about letting the word abide in us, and then he talks about us abiding in the Father and in the Son. The two are related. If we do the first, the second will be true. He says in verse 24 again, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. He's talking there about the gospel. Let the gospel, the truth about Jesus, occupy the deepest place in your heart. And he says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, if you do that, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And so when people challenge our faith and they suggest that we're naive, and they suggest that we're too narrow-minded or all these things, we go back to the gospel, we let it humble us, we let it melt our hearts, 
and we let God convince us all over again that, that the gospel is not only good news, it's the best news we could possibly hear. I mean, God has done the unimaginable. He took on flesh and blood. He paid for our sins when our offense was against him. Where are we going to find that type of news? We go back to the gospel. We let it abide in us, occupy a prominent place in our minds and in our hearts. And when that happens, when we let his word abide in us, we abide in the Son and in the Father. And down in the second half of verse 27, John wraps up the passage by saying, but as his anointing, this is uh, end of verse 27, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so the logic here, since the Holy Spirit has impressed the truth on your heart and mind, this truth about Jesus, abide in Jesus. Whatever you do, don't give up Jesus. Abide in him. And as his words abide in us, we abide in him. Now, that's a great spiritual idea, but what does that mean? What, what does that look like? What's required of us? Maybe this will help. Uh, years ago, I read a book by, by uh, Deborah Dean. It's called The Madonnas of Leningrad. And the word Madonna, Madonna is not just a pop star, it means my lady in Italian. Then it's a reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so a Madonna is a painting of Jesus' mother. And in Leningrad is the, this museum, the Hermitage. And during World War II, as the Nazis laid siege to uh, Leningrad, uh, the, those that worked at the Hermitage, they were concerned that, that the Hermitage would be bombed and all these priceless art works of art would be lost. And so as a labor of love, they took 1.1 million pieces of art, they wrapped them up safely, put them in crates, and they took them away to be stored safely in case the hermitage was, was uh, bombed. But these, these paintings, they, what they typically did is they took the painting out of, the, out of the, uh, the frame, they wrapped it up in paper, put it in the crate, sent it away, but then they took the picture frame and they put it back on the wall as a pledge that one day the picture would return. And we're told that, that when Russian soldiers would come back from the front, I mean, there's such a love for this, this museum and for this, this artwork. Sometimes they would come back to the hermitage in the middle of the, middle of the war. And, and we're told that these, these tour guides at the hermitage, they knew those paintings so well they actually gave tours of the hermitage to these soldiers with empty picture frames hanging there. And they knew those paintings so well. They were so etched on their minds that they could describe in great detail, this vivid detail, the painting and the movement and the story behind it. And it was so real that these soldiers could tell you that they could almost see what the painting there and silently, many of them wept as they heard these descriptions. What I'm describing is those paintings, they were abiding within them. What if the gospel, what if the word of God would abide in us, would have such a prominent place in our, in our lives, in our hearts, and our souls, that we could recount it in vivid detail any time of day or night? It was the most real thing that we could, could imagine. 
It would be real to us, and it would be real to everybody we talk to about it. See, that's how we abide, let his words abide in us. And that doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen as one more thing to put on our to-do list. If, if we're going to let the word abide in us, this is, has to be the passion of our lives. And so we read it, we memorize it, we think about it, we talk about it, we speak the truth to one another in love, and we become doers of the word, and God's word abides in us. And when that happens, we abide in the Son and in the Father. And we have this confidence in our faith, and we have this security. And when people come to us and they say, hey, come over here, I want, I want you to move away from that faith. I want you to try something else, something new, something better. It's like, why would I do that? This is the best thing available. And so we experience this protection from every threat. God has provided what we need. Abide in him. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us the will. We ask that you would give us the, the energy, give us the ability to let your word abide in us. We pray, God, that we would not be moved away from the gospel. God, I pray for anybody here today, anybody within the hearing of my voice who is being lured away from devotion to Jesus. I pray, God, that that person might come back to you humbly and might submit to you and to your gospels and submit to others in the body of Christ and find renewed power, renewed strength, renewed confidence in the gospel. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. God, may we not grieve the Spirit. May we not quench the Spirit. May we not ignore the Spirit in our lives. God, may we let him have his way, and may we let him impress your word on our hearts in ways deeper than we could imagine. Thank you for, for providing everything we need for life, for protection in this, this last hour. In Jesus' name, amen.